Kia ora everyone and welcome to another episode of Conversations with UAIC. Today I'm joined by Zoe Wallace who is currently an investment strategist at Forsyth Bar. Zoe, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Harry. I'm also joined by Rohan Bart, who is one of the co-presidents of the Investment Club this year. Rohan, thank you also for joining. No worries, Harry. Glad to be back on another episode. So getting straight into it, Zoe, could you please just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you studied, and a bit about your career journey? Yeah, sure thing. So I studied economics and finance down at the University of Canterbury. But when I left high school, I wasn't really that sure what I was going to do. So I thought maybe I'd do law. And then in the final year of high school, I actually picked up economics and really, really enjoyed it and thought, oh, well, this is quite interesting. Let's see where this goes. No real idea about kind of end career options, I have to say, at the end of that you know, degree. Um, I did actually start studying economics and psychology and then dropped psych, although it was really interesting, just couldn't see a long-term career in that field. Uh, for me, but dropped psych and then picked up finance a bit later on and then went on to do an honours sort of in economics with some finance papers as well. From that, or in my third year at uni, I was lucky enough to secure an internship at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. So went into more their financial markets area, which was really cool and really sort of opened my eyes, I guess, to actually what the sort of real world of jobs looked like and what was going on when you took all your economics models and finance models and applied them into the real world, which didn't always translate perfectly. And then I actually ended up going back there as a graduate for a few years, largely in financial markets again, which was really cool. From there, I went over to London and worked at Credit Suisse and a sort of brokerage firm as well, doing a bit of equity research analysis. So quite a varied time, just doing a typical OE thing, working between contract jobs and, you know, had a ball, did all the travel things as you do. And then came back to New Zealand to Reserve Bank for a little bit and then ended up at Kiwi Bank in their economics team. So much more into the economic side than I'd done previously, but sort of going back to my roots of my degree um, and then worked my way up there until I was chief economist and sort of running the team there for a couple of years. From there, I moved to Deloitte as chief economist there and spent a few years there before ending up here as an investment strategist at Forsyth Bar. That's an awesome journey. I've got a bit of a follow-up on when you came back from London and you were doing more finance and financial markets up until that point, but then you came back to New Zealand and sort of pivoted to economics. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I guess in probably a little bit of a, a small New Zealand world as someone I knew was working at Kiwi Bank, who used to be my manager at the Reserve Bank at the time, and presented this opportunity. And I was really happy in the role I was doing back at the Reserve Bank. I was actually a portfolio manager there, so investing Um, on behalf of the bank, which was fascinating and pretty good fun. But this opportunity came up and I thought, well, actually, you know, that's a string to my bow that I haven't, I haven't got, and I would like to do at some point and sounds really interesting. The organization was going through quite a strong growth period, sounded like a fantastic team. And so, yeah, just sort of got convinced that that was a a good opportunity. I think, you know, that's probably a pretty good career lesson is that things don't always come along at the perfect time. If I could have chosen when that job came up, it probably would have been 18 months later. But, you know, when opportunities come, you do have to grasp them as they don't always come along that often. So, yeah, ended up taking up that opportunity. Yeah, I guess just another follow up on that. You mentioned how small New Zealand can be in terms of career pathways and jobs. So how significant would you say personal connections and networking are to any students looking for jobs at the moment? Look, I think it helps, but it's absolutely not a be all and end all. You know, we are still a meritocracy and I do think that gets reflected in employment. So if you've done the work, you've got the good grades and you apply for a job, 
that is very much what, you know, you still have to have that to get you across the line and in the door. Yes, knowing people can be helpful. I think it's probably more helpful actually in figuring out what you want to do and actually what jobs are out there. So I think one thing I struggled with as a student, and I know other people do as well, is figuring out what career opportunities are out there from um, doing a degree in economics or doing a degree in finance to how that translates into actually what you can do in the real world. And the opportunities are way more vast than you think they are at university. And so actually, if you can get in touch with a few people, have a family friend or can get someone to put you in touch with someone who knows someone who knows someone, that can be a really great way of gaining insight about what you actually might want to do. Yeah, and we'll dive into some of the more technical stuff soon. But just to take a step back and think a bit more high level, you've obviously got a wealth of experience within economics. But a question we had was, how would you explain what an economist does to a 10 year old? That's a tough question. I'd start by probably saying what I do is look at the macro economy. And what that means is I look at economics typically at the level of a country or an industry. And so from a country perspective, an economy is made up of people producing things, going to work, buying and selling things. And that's kind of the fundamental backbone of an economy, people's behavior and choices about consumption and how they spend their time. So I think if you actually think about the fundamentals, that's kind of what it is. So for a kid thinking about it, you might earn some pocket money. You might go and spend that down at a local store on your dollar mixture of lollies. That's you buying and selling things and you know buying goods and services. You might be selling your time to your parents in return for you doing some chores um, and therefore you're earning a wage. And those basic transactions is kind of when you build it up, what an economy is made up of. Awesome. So having explained what an economist does to a 10-year-old, would you have to explain day-to-day what you actually do in your current role? Quite different to that explanation, probably. Um, So in terms of my role here, of course, I thought I sort of sit alongside our wealth management team, which I'd say my role looks at sort of top down what's going on, both in New Zealand economy and the global economy, and then thinks about what that means for different industries, for example, what's happening with consumer spending, what that means for, you know, the likes of a Kathmandu, for example, if people are feeling pretty confident and feeling like their wages are going up, employment's really strong. That should translate into stronger consumer spending, what's happening in the tourism industry, what's happening in the dairy industry. So all of those sectors of the economy that build up to make the whole picture of the country's economy. Um, So spending quite a bit of time looking at those pieces and thinking through the implications from an investment point of view. So what's going to happen if the Reserve Bank hiked interest rates another 100 basis points or cut them by 100 basis points next year, which is probably more likely. And so what the ramifications of that are for financial markets, because that has an impact on market valuation, it has an impact on the attractiveness of your fixed income or your bond market. And so thinking through that big picture and what it means essentially for investments and how we can help our clients position for that. And would you primarily report to institutional clients or high net worth individuals? What does your client base look like? We have both of those sort of as a client base, but in my role, I'm more focused on the wealth side, which feeds into our advisor network who service a bunch of mum and dad investors, basically. So on the personal sort of financial advisor side. So I guess in a similar vein, would you be able to talk a little bit about what's going on in the financial markets at the moment, both in New Zealand and overseas? Yeah, it's been a pretty interesting past year, really. I think what's interesting about it is, from my point of view, is some of the economics has been really a key backbone or driver of markets. Like The economy always has an impact on what's going on in financial markets and equity markets, but certainly for the past couple of years, it's felt like that has actually really taken center stage. The fact that 
inflation rates have been going up at such a rapid pace over the past few years and are now starting to ease back. But in response to those high inflation rates, we've had really rapid interest rate hikes. And so we've seen interest rates go up at the fastest pace we've seen ever in New Zealand since they introduced the official cash rate. We've seen the fastest pace of rate hikes delivered in the US that we've seen since the 1980s. Um, So really significant monetary policy tightening. And what that's meant is that's had a pretty negative flow and effect for equity markets, certainly over the last, or certainly up until the end of last year. As we're nearing the peak in interest rate hikes, we're starting to see um, some of that pressure come off. And actually, it's been a really positive first six months, seven months a year for most stock markets around the world, more so in the US. And a lot of that's been driven by a focus on technology stocks and new AI technology. If you've been watching, you know, NVIDIA or Tesla or Microsoft share price in the last six months, you'll be able to see that quite clearly in the charts. But also, actually, that enthusiasm's been much more broad-based. And one of the things behind that is the fact that we're now seeing the US economies that everyone probably six months ago was expecting most global economies were going to fall into a recession as a result of those really rapid, significant rate hikes. What we've seen in the US is actually they're managing to weather those rate hikes relatively well. And the economy is sort of coming in for the, what they call this perfect soft landing, not too hot, not too cold, where inflation comes down, but your economy actually holds in there okay and growth remains okay. The unemployment rate might rise a bit, but not too much, and that's off super record lows at the moment anyway. So it looks like the US may be able to achieve this soft landing. Um, and so that's bolstered sentiment, particularly in US equity markets as well over the last few months. I had a quick follow-up question on that, on sort of how financial markets react to what's going on in the economy and that sort of economic measures of what's going on doesn't necessarily correlate to what actually happens in the financial markets. Do you want to speak a bit to that? Are you thinking about anything in particular? Well, I was thinking during COVID when financial market prices were just going through the roof, but then there was so much uncertainty in in the economy. I was thinking about that in particular. Yeah, and that's an interesting, you know, case study over the last few years. It's been a really odd mini business cycle, basically. I mean, what happened when COVID first really became a thing, you know, thinking back to sort of February, March 2020, um, you did see a really nasty flash crash, basically, in financial markets where equity prices fell quite dramatically because there was just so much uncertainty. But then you saw both governments and central banks step up to the plate with a huge amount of stimulus. So, you know, interest rates were slashed to record lows. Quantitative easing came back into play. We embarked on our own version of quantitative easing in New Zealand. Governments pumped a huge amount of cash into the economy. If you think back to what the forecasts were around the New Zealand economy, we were talking about you know a really nasty downturn, the worst sort of global downturn we'd seen since the Great Depression. Talking about you know an unemployment rate of ten or even twenty percent was some of the forecasts during that period there. And so, because of all that uncertainty, you saw a really strong fiscal and monetary policy response. And that pumped a huge amount of cash into economies. And that cash was then all looking for a home, particularly as things um, settled down and perhaps there was a little bit less uncertainty. And you saw this you know, play out in asset values across the board. So property prices is the other prime example of where things kind of went a bit ballistic for a while there, particularly with the removal of LVR restrictions helping that. And so you saw asset prices go up across the board. And with interest rates at record lows, people weren't particularly incentivized to leave that money in the bank. And so... That money went for searching for a home and a lot of that found a home in the property market or the stock market. And so really um, that easy, cheap money certainly fueled those asset price gains through that period. And then as you saw, you know, basically that the equity market downturn and that bear market really began when interest rate hikes started and that withdrawal of cheap money began. Yeah, certainly interesting times we're living in. 
And especially for us as students, there's a lot of things that we need to consider when looking at financial markets and things like that. I'm glad that you guys mentioned COVID because I think that was the time when a lot of students actually started looking at financial markets. A lot of people around university started investing in stocks themselves. And there's been this massive spike in interest towards financial markets for people within that age demographic. So given that, how do you think university students should look at investing in the current economic climate? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd say, you know, key thing to keep in mind is timeframes, right? You guys are young and you have the beauty of compound interest on your side, right? You also have theoretically, unless you're planning on using the money in the next five to 10 years, a long-term you know, investment horizon, which means that you can ride the ups and downs of economic and financial market cycles. So I think that's the first thing that you should be thinking about is you're investing for the long-term for cumulative gains. And if you look back over history, the stock market's given you an annual return of around 79% year on year on average. And so looking through cycles and perhaps even looking at you know little downturns as buying opportunities because you can afford to buy and hold and you're not subject to trying to use that cashing out in the next couple of years can be quite a good way of thinking about investing. What has been quite interesting, I mean, it's been great to see the increased interest in financial markets and investing, because I think from a long-term point of view, New Zealanders have historically been probably relatively poor at certainly um, storing our wealth in businesses rather than houses, as we've historically had quite a strong propensity to buy homes rather than sort of invest in the share market and invest in business. And so it's really great to see that coming through. Unfortunately, I think some of that's been forced by the fact that housing affordability is seeming increasingly out of reach for a lot of younger people. But it's certainly a really good thing because you think about that also helps power your economy. So the more capital we have available to go and invest in businesses in New Zealand, the more opportunities there are to grow New Zealand economy. So that is a pretty positive feedback loop as well. So in terms of how you guys should be thinking about about investing, I would say playing the long game and thinking about the long term. I mean, obviously, this can't be financial advice and very much depends on your own independent situations, those caveats in there. But yeah, as I say, as a general approach, when you look at the long term share market performance over history and past returns are no guarantee of future returns, but there's some really great opportunities to get started early on saving and investing now that will help you build wealth over the medium to long term. Yeah, you sort of hinted at the fact that obviously share markets are a lot more accessible now than they might have been sort of five, 10 years ago. And while that accessibility is great, do you think there's a risk, or at least how do you think New Zealand should mitigate the risk of people just going in blindly with their eyes closed and risking getting burnt? Mm, That's a good question. Um, And I think the FMA is quite cognizant of this. That's the Financial Markets Authority. So that's sort of the regulatory body for financial markets in New Zealand is aware that with more people actively being involved in the share market, there is a risk that people don't understand the risks that they're taking. And, you know, with shares, you can lose the entire value of your funds if those companies go bankrupt. I think, you know, a large share of it needs to be education around those risks. And so with people getting increasingly interested in the share market, you also need to educate people around the risks that they are taking. I think, you know, the likes of us and other organizations do try and do that through investor communications. So talking about diversification being a key one. So not just buying purely Apple stocks, for example, or Tesla shares. Historically, those have been quite volatile. And so you can make a lot of money quickly, but you can lose a lot of money quickly too. So what people need to keep in mind is the risk they're taking. And with that, think about, you know, what that money is being used for and how you're, what funds you're putting at risk. If it's a little bit of play money that you could afford to lose the whole sum on, fine. If it's your life savings and what you're you know, relying on for retirement, different. I had a follow-up more around the economic climate that you mentioned earlier. 
Do you see any similarities between now and 2008, 2009, if at all? Uh, so I guess, you know, what we've got in the market at the moment are the higher interest rates we've seen since that time period. So back then, prior to the global financial crisis or the GFC, we had an official cash rate of 8.25%. We're at 5.5% at the moment, so nowhere near back at that level, but the highest level that a lot of people, you know, will have seen in the last 10 years. In terms of the similarities, I mean, the GFC was a buildup of risk in the financial system that was mispriced. What we've seen is that actually why with interest rates at currently high levels, it's a response to a period of ultra-stimulatory monetary and fiscal policy, pent-up demand, some of the weird patterns that were caused through the COVID period, like the fact that we had lockdowns and no one could go anywhere and spend anything. And so we had all this pent-up demand and pent-up savings as well that then flowed through into an economy which couldn't match that on the supply side. We had some one-off supply shocks like the war in Ukraine and the massive closure of ports and shipping issues. And so we're in the highest inflationary environment we've seen in decades in some countries. And then we've seen central banks respond to that with higher interest rates. What I think is that the effect of those interest rate hikes is still being felt differently across different countries and are playing out in different ways, slightly than we might expect during a normal business cycle because of those weird COVID shocks. And so it has taken some time to start seeing inflation rates come down, partly because you've seen consumers remain really strong and you've seen labour markets remain really strong. So unemployment rates are still near record lows around most countries in the world. So my view is you're probably going to see RBNZ start to cut rates next year. But what we saw in 2008 was a really rapid rate cutting cycle delivered in response to a very nasty financial sector shock. What we're expecting to see next year is more a gradual rate reduction cycle in response to the fact that you've hiked interest rates and your economy is now cooling as you needed them to, to some extent, to start getting inflation pressure down. So that's much more a normal business cycle. Typically used to happen every eight to nine years, but that post-GFC period was quite unusual is that we never really got off ultra-stimulatory monetary policy rates. Awesome. I know we could probably talk about this all day, but moving on to your career as opposed to the doom and gloom in the economy, for students studying economics and finance as you did, I was keen to ask how you'd advise them to sort of prepare for the workforce while they're at university and whether there are any particular skills that are desirable coming out of uni in the workforce today. Yeah, great question. I mean, one thing I would say is, you know, there are a lot of internships on offer, which is a really great way of getting a, a taster over summer and earning some money, hopefully in order to get a bit of an idea about what jobs are out there. The other point goes to what we talked about before and, you know, trying to get a bit of insight by chatting to people, friends of friends, family's friends, if you can find, you know, someone, loose connection. People are really willing to help and particularly like sharing their stories and their expertise. And so I think as a student, I would have felt quite nervous asking someone to spend half an hour having a coffee with me to talk about what they did. But actually, people are more than willing to help. So just ask. The other thing I would say from personal experience, I, in my current role, I do a lot of sort of public speaking and presentations. And one thing that I definitely think helped was a bit geeky, but I did debating through school and university. And even something like Toastmasters or just having that confidence around public speaking really helps in terms of just engaging. You know, we go out and talk to clients a lot. So engaging with people, thinking about how you structure arguments or thinking about how you convey information in a compelling way. And that hugely helps, I think, in most careers. So if you can get any exposure to that, that often does help when you get into the real workforce. And then I guess relating to your career more specifically, you've had experience working across both private sector and public sector firms. 
So could you talk a little bit about any similarities and differences you found across both of them and what you perhaps liked or disliked between them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I sort of worked at the Reserve Bank and at Kiwi Bank. You could call them quasi-public, probably. Um, it's not full-blown government, but also had a bit of exposure to the government sector through working at Deloitte, where we dealt a lot with government clients. I think there's pros and cons to both. Um, I think also what you'll find is that actually work environments and the type of work will vary quite hugely just depending on the firm, be it across public or private sector. Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's probably any major lessons. I'd say what's quite useful, though, if you, you know, if you want a career in New Zealand is understanding how both work. So rather than spending your whole career in one or your whole career in the other, actually crossing over at some point to get a view from the other side, be that in a regulatory framework or in a sort of policy advice position, depending on what you're sort of interested in doing. But understanding how the two pieces fit together is probably actually a really useful skill. Yeah, just a quick follow up on that. A lot of students at university now, when they look at the workforce, and they look at the opportunities out there. The first thought that comes to mind is opportunities overseas. And we're seeing a lot of graduates looking for jobs in Australia, in the UK, sort of anywhere outside of New Zealand. And so we just wanted to ask, was that something that you considered when you were at university? And was there any advice that you would like to give to university students who are debating whether to go overseas or to pursue a career within New Zealand at the moment? It's a tricky one because it's obviously so personalized, right? Um, I think... I always intended to go overseas, but I think going straight out of uni is probably quite a lot harder than getting a grounding in New Zealand, where the market knows you, they know what your degree means, they understand what your qualification is, and you get a few years of experience under your belt, and then you've got something to kind of show for yourself in terms of work experience before you go. I would say that's generally probably easier, either that or you do your undergrad here and then go do a postgrad degree overseas. One thing I did find was I did an honours postgrad and I went to the UK and no one understood that that was a postgrad degree over there. So that caught me out a little bit. So they award honours if you get certain marks in your undergrad degree. And so they just thought it meant I had a really strong undergrad, whereas they understand what a master's is. So that that's a good catch uh, if you can pick that one up. So often going and doing a postgrad program overseas, if you do want to then go straight out of uni into a job is probably um, an easier pathway. The other piece for me, and maybe come on to this a bit later, but was CFA, which really helped just having something that was internationally recognizable because no one really knows what University of Otago or Canterbury or Auckland is, but they do understand what CFA is. So that was a really useful thing to have done before I went overseas. I hadn't finished all of them, but I'd done, I think, my first one or two. I know CFA was going to be my next question. Um, I was going to ask who you'd recommend CFA would be a good qualification for. And I guess just for everyone listening, Zoe was on the board of the CFA Society. So I guess, in fact, also, if you want to talk about your role there, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, this is probably a good opportunity to give a bit of a plug for the research challenge. If you are studying finance at uni and you haven't heard about it, so CFA every year run a research challenge, which gets you, I mean, this is a great way of getting exposure to what you would actually do in your day job if you were an equity analyst for a company. And so what you do as part of the research challenge is form a team and then get given a company to cover and you write a research report and you have to come up with a buy, sell or hold recommendation as well based on where you think the stock price is going to go over the next six to 12 months. So really great practical exercise, gives you some great modeling skills, but also um, gives you exposure to some people in the industry. So I know we've employed people we've seen come through the CFA research challenge previously, and I know a lot of our competitors have also done that because it's great ground to see, you know, potential future students come through. So part of my role on the CFA board was actually running that research challenge and organizing that for a couple of years. 
CFA is a really great way of gaining exposure to quite a broad range of industry sectors. So you see things like economics, finance, accounting, you cover off quite a broad range of topics. Ethics is a key sort of backbone of the CFA program. And there's three levels to it. So you can do just level one and then that might be you. But to get the full qualification, you have to do three different exams um, and then have some work experience as well. That's great. Thank you for that overview of the CFA program. And I think it's something that a lot of a lot of us are looking to just bearing in mind how small New Zealand is. And sometimes people like you say might not recognize how good our qualifications are, I guess. Moving on to our last question we're asking, I know you've answered it throughout, but in general terms, what advice would you give to people at university, in particular people who are maybe in their first year and are just starting out and have no idea what they want the rest of their life to look like? Yeah, tough one. Um, I think first year at uni is a really great opportunity to try out a bunch of different subjects. So if you think you've liked something at school, but you can't quite see a career path in it, or if you you're really enjoying a management class, but you started in accounting, for example, and, you know, think about what you're really enjoying and what you're good at, because typically that will serve you in in good order as you go through, particularly to get a degree. But also that you're not locked into whatever you study. You know, there are opportunities to change or switch or come out of studying with a geography degree or a chemistry degree and go into a finance industry. I know a lot of engineers who've ended up in finance rather than engineering. If you've got some good core skills, particularly in STEM, that can be a really great transferable skill set to the finance world as well. So you don't have to purely have studied finance. I would say that increasingly coding and data analytics are quite useful areas if you have an interest in them, then they can be really valuable skills to employers. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zoe, for your time today. This has been awesome. It's been great to have you on and just to learn a bit more about yourself and your journey. So thank you again for coming. Thanks very much. It's been great to chat. And thank you also, Rohan, for joining and helping out today. It's always great having you around. No worries, Harry. And as always, if you've got any feedback, suggestions, or anything you'd want to hear in future, please do get in touch with us either on social media or by emailing podcast at uaic.co.nz. Awesome. Well, thanks, Zoe and Rohan. Appreciate your time. 